The moon could use a little zhuzh. I mean, in For All Mankind, the lunar base, Jamestown, is the center of the action. But since 1972, when the last astronaut came home in the real world, the moon's been quiet. You know the story. Budget cuts, shifting priorities, boy bands. The world changed. And over time, the moon just lost its luster. But that big gray rock in the sky is about to make a comeback. I'm Chris Marshall, and this is the For All Mankind podcast. Today on our show, I want to talk about life on the moon. Not some pie-in-the-sky Jetsons idea, but the very real possibility of a permanent moon habitat within the next 10 years. We'll hear from experts who are designing our future lunar dwellings and how we'll all get along up there, especially when you're over 200,000 miles away from the nearest lawyer. But first, I want to dive into my favorite lunar base, Jamestown. I spoke to a few folks from our show to understand the real-world inspirations for our base and the deeper meaning behind it. Okay, you guys ready? Born ready. So here I'm joined by our incredible executive producers, Matt Walpert and Ben Nadivi. Hi, guys. Hey. Hi there. So, Matt, tell the folks what you do on the show. What does it mean to be an executive producer? Oh, God. I'm still trying to figure that out. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It means that really from the very beginning, Ben and I and Ron and Meryl have been shaping the show uh, from a writing point of view, from a conceptual point of view. It's really kind of overseeing the whole process uh, and making sure everything feels like it's the best version of what it could be. And so, Matt, you're doing all the hard work. Ben, what are you doing? I love to eat, actually. I'm a big fan (laughs) of choosing what we have for lunch and kind of making sure there's enough snacks around for all this uh, processing. No, I think think Matt put that pretty good. I mean, you know, it's in a show of this size and this scope— there are so many departments, so many people focused on their job. I think, you know, it's, it's the four of us that kind of have to keep tap on everything and making sure the mm-hmm. departments are talking to each other and making sure it gets to the end. So Jamestown has grown enormously, and now Jamestown is like, you know, almost this death star, right? It's just this this ever-expanding thing. And it almost feels like Jamestown has become, you know, a character in our story. I mean, early mm-hmm. when we see Danielle at the top of, I guess it's episode two, and she's talking about wanting to go back. I, I want to see how it's changed. I, I want to see what it's become. Well, you know what it's become. I mean, you helped design the damn thing. Ugh, it's not the same thing. I want to see it with my own eyes. I want to suit up in the morning, put my boots in the moon dust, <laughs> see the sun rise of Shackleton again. <laughs> And there is, I mean, I'm talking about it as if it's not being played by me, um, but there is, there's a look in her eye that feels like um, Jamestown is an old friend. Mm. I think that's interesting the way you put it, because you're right. It, it's a character that, like all of you from the season, we have to discuss how you change. And I think that discussion also involved Jamestown. You know, a big mm-hmm. thing from season one to two is the expansion of this base yeah, we were really loved that moment with Gordo, not only coming into Jamestown, and you see him go through the base and you see how much it's changed, but then you end on that little room he was in with you mm. and Ed. And mm. that moment of looking back at something and going like, wow, that was small. It is. I mean, what is it? The dimensions are like 300 square feet, maybe? Yeah, it's like a bachelor apartment. 
Yeah, and that's, you know, the, I think the, if I could differentiate the two seasons, it's like the, the first version of Jamestown was like, it was almost like a cabin in the woods type mm-hmm. story, the way we looked mm-hmm. at it. People stuck in a cabin in the woods in a blizzard together, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. Jack London kind of style. Mm-hmm. And season two is really like a submarine story. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, it's a mm-hmm. crew living together in, the, in this, it's still confined space. And I heard that there actually were sort of early blueprints of a lunar base, a Jamestown-type base. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The tiny size of Season 1 Jamestown is based on plans for actual, real-life moon bases that were never built. You might remember Erica Hatva from Episode 1 of our podcast. Hello. My name's Erica Hatva. I'm a researcher for the Writer's Room on For All Mankind. She's back to talk about when something like Jamestown almost became a reality. In 1959, the U.S. planned something called Project Horizon. It imagined the moon as a hub for research and communication, but also a place to put weapons. The Project Horizon was uh, essentially a report by an Army ballistic missile agency for NASA. It was a secret military moon base. The idea was developed in response to the height of the Cold War tensions with, with Russia. And one of the main reasons was to detonate a lunar nuclear weapon and fire missiles from the moon at Russia. This was actually planned and written in the plan. Uh, the, the documents were declassified, which is how we know these things. Now, this was the Cold War, so the Soviets weren't about to let the Americans have all the fun. There was one very detailed Soviet moon project developed between 1962 and 1974 that was called Zvezda. You might also remember Zvezda as the name of the Soviet lunar base and for all mankind. It looks very typically Soviet for that era, uh, sort of brutalist and, uh, and, you know, three prongs compared to the sort of more circular and organic NASA. And, you know, many of these moon-based plans included not only the aims of the base, you know, the plan for the research that would go on, but there was always a detailed concept on how the base would be constructed, how it would be realized, what scientific equipment there would be. Many of the plans also included a list of staff, which I found very interesting. As Jamestown expands on the show, it's a reminder that we still don't have a base on the moon in real life. So Erica explains what went wrong there. You know, there are many reasons uh, why a moon base hasn't been built yet. There's a confluence of political will, of public will, uh, technological know-how and finance. It's a very expensive proposition. Very often in history, there's been a question of why have a moon base when we have other issues at home to deal with, you know, that can be more easily addressed and and the money can be diverted to those. Okay, so there's nothing up there yet. But there are real plans in the works. The U.S. has the Gateway Project, which is part of the Artemis program, and it's planning an outpost both orbiting the moon and uh, a return to the lunar surface and having a moon base there as well, which would be a staging point for deep space exploration. Uh, So essentially the goal of Artemis is to establish a long-term human presence on the moon by about 2030. China and Russia have recently announced that they'll be building a moon base together. It's very exciting um, at an international lunar research station. So, you know, these are very feasible plans, both by NASA and uh, Russia and China, for current moon bases. Okay, real moon bases. You heard it here first. Or, I don't know, maybe you heard it somewhere else already, but the point is, it's happening! Now, one of the big reasons it hasn't happened yet is because building on the moon is hard. 
Like, really, really, really hard. And no one knows this better than Dr. Shirley Dyke, a professor of mechanical and civil engineering at Purdue University. My name is Shirley Dyke, and I'm a researcher who is right now focused on resilient extraterrestrial space habitats. NASA has awarded $15 million to Purdue's Reth Institute, led by Dr. Dyke, to help design a habitat for life off the Earth. But actually building something like this presents a lot of challenges. The moon is more hostile than any location on the Earth. Probably the nearest type of environment that would offer similar challenges would be underwater. If we were trying to build underwater habitats, we would have the opposite. We would have extreme pressure on the outside instead of a vacuum on the outside, right? If we think about here on Earth, if there's a fire, you go outside. You get out of the habitat. If there's a tornado, you go under it or you get a safe room, right? There, there are ways to deal with this. If you're underwater, you can't leave the habitat easily. You can't leave the habitat just because there's a leak inside or a fire inside. That's one of the things that would make it similar. On the moon, this environment makes it impossible for us to just escape. If there's one thing that space experts agree on, it's that the moon is a hostile environment. But what does that even mean? Well, we've heard about the dangers of solar radiation, but there are other things to worry about, like extreme temperatures, moonquakes, and even meteorites. Meteorites can be a risk. It's very unlikely that there's gonna be a direct hit of a meteorite on a habitat, although it can occur. When you're on the surface of the moon and a meteorite of any size strikes nearby. There's what they call ejecta, which is regolith from the soil that's on the moon that is ejected up at very high speed. And so that ejecta itself is gonna hit the habitat as well. This all sounds like a little much for me, but Dr. Dyke and other engineers out there solve problems like this for breakfast. Yeah, I'm, I'm confident that we can surmount these challenges. There's a number of different designs for habitats that are being considered. One of them is just literally porting a habitat, porting a module from Earth to the moon and placing it down. And that's a great starting point. Sooner or later, we're going to want to use local resources to build that habitat. And that means learning how to use the regolith and turn it into building materials, which is something that has been started. Another option is to take an inflatable habitat and lifting that up and then expanding it, filling it with air, expanding it, pulling it to its full size. And ultimately, there's one more option that people are thinking about, which is lava tubes. That's right, lava tubes. Believe it or not, the moon used to have lots of volcanic activity. It's only in the last billion or so years that it's petered out and the cooling of all that lava created huge subterranean tunnels that are still there today. In a very short period of time, humans will succumb to radiation and not do very well. So one of the best ways to protect them is to use the naturally occurring regolith that is there to protect the habitat. And that could mean putting a structure of some type, whether it's an inflatable or some other type of structure inside of a lava tube However we decide to build a habitat, it will probably start out as a small research station, conducting experiments without needing to bring everything back to Earth. Eventually, though, that research station and the number of people living in it is sure to grow. I'd like to see us actually 
develop a habitat where multiple people could live, multiple families maybe could live. Before we can actually have a functioning habitat that is going to be able to sustain more than one or two people, it's it's going to take a number of years, maybe a, maybe a decade. There's a lot to learn about the lunar environment and about the challenges of building in this environment and the fact that so many different fields need to come together to make this a reality. It's not just aerospace engineers, it's aerospace and civil and mechanical and computer and ev everybody and all different expertise has to go into this. It's going to take a lot to get us to our future life on the moon. And one of the challenges that's getting more and more attention is figuring out just what exactly is legal there. So in Season 2, Episode 3 of For All Mankind, things on the moon are beginning to feel like the Wild West when Russian cosmonauts begin using an American mine. I've just spoken with the president. He's decided not to bring this to the United Nations Security Council. So he's just going to let the Soviets take our mining site? No, he's not going to do that either. He wants us to take it back. As in, as in, go in, replace their equipment with ours, and swap out the flag again, but this time, we hold it. There are real people dedicated to making sure the moon, and all of space, is a little more civil than on our show. Meet Chelsea Robinson. Hi, my name is Chelsea Robinson. Uh, I work as the Chief Operating Officer at Open Lunar Foundation. At Open Lunar, we're a nonprofit based in the United States, and our mission is to create a peaceful, cooperative, long term future on the moon for the benefit of all life. Open Lunar deals mostly with creating laws and rules in space that the international community can all agree on. And if you're an astronaut on the moon, there's definitely an appeal to the nice neighborly approach. The moon is such a hostile environment. That's what makes it such an important, necessary environment for cooperation. Because if you can't solve something yourself, you have to turn to your neighbor. You have to turn to the person who's got more oxygen in their tank than you do. And if you don't, you'll die. And so that fundament of survival that has created a lot of, you know, that same choice throughout history, war or peace, cooperate or compete. That's that same question that we're going to be addressing every day on the context of the moon. Now, believe it or not, there are laws on the moon. There is this one agreement from 1967 called the Outer Space Treaty that was signed by all the major spacefaring nations. It's not perfect, but for now, this is what we're working with. The Outer Space Treaty is the governing sort of rule of law for space. However, it is very general. So today's work is interpreting it. And that's really what a lot of our space lawyers today are doing with their time. When it comes to the moon, there's a lot of gray area. Moon joke! But even so, there are some things the Outer Space Treaty did clearly define. Probably the most significant is that no entity can claim land on the moon. It's prohibited to separate it, to chop it up into bits, and have it governed by individual countries. We absolutely cannot function on the moon in the same way as we have been doing on Earth. And so sovereign appropriation is prohibited. Um, additionally, installing military capabilities on the moon is prohibited, and barring access to the moon is prohibited. In terms of what's legal, we can go there, conduct science, explore, that's all fine. But when it comes to our plans coming up in the future, people really want to stay for the long term. 
We've got teams in 2021 planning to land and extract resources to help them figure out how to sustain on the moon for the long term. So those are some of the newer areas that we need to develop guidelines around going forward. But we may want to develop those guidelines sooner than later, because there are plenty of things that could happen that we aren't exactly prepared for. The Outer Space Treaty does require, quote unquote, due regard for one another's activities in space. And it also requires, quote unquote, uh, the reduction of harmful interference. If interference does happen, or if something goes against the rules, how do we handle that? Do we deal with it in space or do we deal with it on Earth? The liability does lie with the launch state, but ultimately it's still a discussion. And recently, that discussion has become more than just a hypothetical. In 2019, a nonprofit that sent a spacecraft to the lunar surface crash landed. They were carrying a lot of different payloads, and that means that they were carrying lots of different boxes of little materials and ex- experiments and whatnot. Those shattered and broke and spread out across the surface as they crash landed. One of the things they were carrying on board was biomaterial, it was dehydrated and dead micro life, tiny little creatures that are sort of, you know, single cell organism size. No one knew they were on the spacecraft and the team that put them on there had not told the launch state. So these little creatures that are called tardigrades were spread across the surface of the moon without permission from anybody and without transparency and without sign off. So who's responsible? Was it the team who built the lander? Was it the team who put the little creatures in the box that smashed. These are the types of challenges that are actually really tricky to figure out. Now, a dispute over a couple tiny organisms probably won't bring the international community to a grinding halt. But Chelsea's point is that there's a risk to not getting out ahead of these problems. There are so many ways that we could get it wrong. We might have cultural conflict. We might have resource conflict. Um, Obviously, the worst case scenario is warfare that isn't only on our planet, but that is throughout our solar system. That would be an absolute disaster. What we can see preventing that from a cultural standpoint is our astronaut corps, all of the astronauts all over the world, the cosmonauts, they are fantastic ambassadors. And despite the portrayal in the For All Mankind TV series, where, you know, we even see murder, which is horrific and actually very, very unrealistic because astronauts are selected, trained and really curated to have the right personality, have the right mindset, to see the best in everyone and to make the best of every situation, no matter how bad it is. World peace is a lot to put on the shoulders of astronauts. But hopefully they can keep things cool until we can all work out a more cooperative system for the future. The moon can be a case study for figuring out how to develop good systems for borderless governance. We're living in a very, very fragile moment right now. We've got less and less countries run in democracies. We've got fear of immigration, climate change, issues of food availability, wildfire, water, ocean changes, and livability of land in general. So these are all issues that are going to require global cooperation systems. We need to rise above, you know, silos, sectors, differences, and figure out how to make agreements that keep our world working. So we want to make sure that when we all go outside and look up at the moon in our backyards, perhaps even one day see some glimmering lights of life, people living up there, and we want to be able to feel great about what's happening there. 
Now that we have so many brilliant minds tackling problems and over a half century of space experience, lunar settlements are closer to reality than ever before. It's incredible to think that out there is still a beautiful, untouched place so close to all the busy human activity on Earth. But those days are coming to an end. As long as we can keep things cooperative and peaceful, humanity's first steps into life on the moon will set the stage for an extraordinary future. I personally look forward to sipping a cocktail at my pied-à-terre off Shackleton Crater. I want to thank my guests, Matt Walpert and Ben Nadivi, Erica Hatfa, Dr. Shirley Dyke, and Chelsea Robinson. On our final episode of For All Mankind, the official podcast, we'll look far into the future of spaceflight, exploring how the seeds that were planted during the space race will grow and what that will mean for all of us. And of course, you can't talk about the big picture without hearing from Ron Moore, the creator of For All Mankind. This is Chris Marshall, safe and sound Earthside. Thanks for listening to the For All Mankind podcast. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts to get the next episode in your feed. And watch For All Mankind on Apple TV Plus where available. This is an Apple TV Plus podcast produced by At Will Media. Executive produced by Will Malnati. Produced by Chris Marshall, Ashley Taylor, Patrick Farrell, Drew Beebe, and associate producer Dominique Ibekwe. Sound editing by the At Will Media team. Sound designed and mixed by 1000 Birds.